It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hey, Chris. Hey, Andrew. Happy January. Um, yeah. You're not happy? <laughs> not a big fan. <laughs> you know, I was um, I was thinking about, it's 2024. I was thinking about how the last good year was 2014. Really? That's the last my, good year was the last a, good year. a solid decade ago? Yeah. Oof. <laughs> That's too bad. I mean, because we had... Um, yeah, what was going on in 2014 that made it so great? Well, I don't know if it was so great, but I mean, it was like it was still good. Like in, you know, right at the start of 2015, you know, that's when the Don wall got done. And like the, the, like there was a dearth of other thing, more pressing and terrible things going on in the world Mm -hmm. that allowed like the New York times to spend a month covering climbing. And yeah, it was just like, that was the start of just like a lot of craziness in our culture. And, and then, you know, we had four years of Trump and then we had COVID and now here we are in 2024 and it feels like it's been a decade of just kind of. Yeah. did did kind of turn to shit for, for a while there. <laughs> Although somewhere in there, Alex resold El Cap. Um, yeah. That was like the last gasp. That was a good years. Yeah. It's it like 2018 or something or 2017. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. 2017. Yeah. So anyhow, yeah, I mean that's not what I want to talk about with you today. <laughs> I was thinking that I was thinking that we could talk about January just being this month of like you know setting training goals. You know, yeah, that's, kind that's of a true. Thing where people get into yep. the gym and they have these big aspirations for the kind of uh, fit and fit uh, you know strong individuals that they want to become. Well, it's it's a it's a good time. I mean, other than the whole New Year's resolution thing, if you think about timing your training for at least in North America, for sort of better outdoor rock climbing conditions, this is the time to start mm-hmm. because you want to do your your program and then have your rest period and be ready to start firing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, by the end of Feb, early March or mid March. So it's t- it is time. It's time to do this. If you're going to do it, if you're not just going to throw 2024 into the trash like the last ten month ten years, <laughs> it's time to get on it. I just realized that like um like Australians don't have September. They have like March something. March Right. Uh, uh I don't know. I mean not madness. Be. That's already been used. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's maybe the some Australian could could uh write in and tell us what your what your pun is for your best climbing month. Um It doesn't matter. We'll send that no to the No one cares writing about table. Australian climbing. That's it's true. all illegal now anyway. Anyway, yeah, so I had this idea to talk about training and fitness because it's kind of, it's large, I'd say it's like probably 75%, if not more, of all climbing media and content that's created now it has to do with some, some kind of um, take on how to be a better climber, I would say. That was, it kind of seems to be like that's what we're living in. Most of everything that gets created about climbing is training related or self-improvement related or just like content related to like climbing indoors and doing moonboard problems and stuff and putting them on your reels. I would agree with that. And and also there's not, you know, you don't really celebrate a send without then 
evolving into like, well, how did that person get so fit to do that climb? Mm -hmm. Like, let's let's go back and find out Seb Bois, you know, training secret, so we can we can also send. I yeah. mean, and the training secret with Seb Bois, which which will probably you know this is gonna gonna fit into what we're talking about. His training secret is that he's French and he grew up in <laughs> in Provence and he climbs all the fucking time. Right, and uh, that's it. You know, that's that's kind yeah, of he like clearly has good genes too because yeah. his mom is like fit as fuck. Yeah, and so it's like that's ninety percent of it, maybe ninety five, and then whether he hangboards or or what in the gym is the is the little last last little bit. So I was also thinking about this because I watched um I watched this like little reel or story or whatever it is um that our our fellow podcaster uh colleague Steve Dimmitt at the Nugget put out um it just like popped into my Facebook feed I guess. And um he was kind of addressing some pushback that he had gotten on a recent episode where he had some chiropractor on his on his show. I'm not sure who it was. Uh, but a lot of people apparently in his comment feed were just kind of ripping on the chiropracting in general. They were, you know, mm -hmm. they were kind of like, you know, chiropractors aren't real doctors. It's, it's not a real science. Yeah, yeah, it's pseudoscience. Right. And so he was, he, you know, he was kind of talking about deleting all these negative comments about his guest and how it just was inappropriate and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, we could like go down a tangent of whether chiropracting is, is like real science or not, or real doctory. I've 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 had my fair share of, of chiropractic visits and um, always been underwhelmed by the results. And uh, but I don't know. I'll leave that to the expert doctors about whether they want to include um, chiropractors in their in their uh, field. And they're they're on their the top of their airy tower that they live in. <laughs> yeah, beautiful airy ivory tower. Yes. I mean, we always joke that um, the, the chiropractor, my wife and I used to go see like the, the only prescription he could prescribe was fish oil. So um, <laughs> that, I, I think that kind of speaks to our opinion. Well, anything with it. an asterisk on it and the asterisk <laughs> leads you to the part where it says, we don't really know if this does anything. Yeah. Yeah. Just <laughs> Down totally. on the bottom of the bottle and the tiny little print asterisk yeah. medicines. But that was not or cupping. Really... You could probably get you over to the cupping place. <laughs> Cut my balls, dirty man. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Um, I that's not really what I was. What made me think of this because he, it was more the, there was a part of his um, his little spiel to his audience that was more interesting to me, which is that he makes this point that there is no like doctor of crimping. You know, the, the the to the degree that there is any expertise in the area of training or injury prevention or just diagnosis in the climbing space, it's all just kind of by analogy of other areas where science has been more robustly studied and advanced. And so people bring that expertise into the climbing space and there is no like degree you can go get about how to, you know, become the best crimper in the world. And so it's mm -hmm. all just a lot of uh, it's just, you know, people who have some expertise or just some understanding of the literature and they apply it to climbing by, um, by analogy. So uh, all of that to say, I mean, like it, I, I think that's a really interesting point and worth dwelling on because so much of the, uh, you know, like the content that's being created is really just like people just speculating base essentially about what they think 
is the best way to improve in the climbing space. And I think that it's just making climbing a little too complicated. Like I think it's making the the approach to getting better at climbing too complicated. And I, and I think that there's just a lot of reasons to be skeptical that any of <laughs> all of this content is like worth listening to or paying attention to. I've been thinking about this because we've been thinking about this topic, but you know, I think that people get more out of these training programs and community, and it's actually not that much about actually improving your climbing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's more to sitting there wondering and, and being alone in your house and like trying to figure out what to do and reaching out and having a community, having someone to tell you what to do, having, and, and literally like thinking about like my wife, who's a lawyer, you know, she talks about how much just therapy she does as she, she does domestic uh, relations and stuff. So, you know, these, these desperate people with broken hearts often and stuff like that. And she mm-hmm. does all this therapy and it's kind of like part of the deal. And right. perhaps maybe even more valuable is that these women or these men or whatever have someone to talk to and, and air their grievances. Right. And, uh, you know, so. And she I probably that, didn't take a course in law school, uh, you know, about how to navigate those conversations. No. And in fact, law school probably told her not to, to get involved with right. that stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, but she's just naturally good at it. And it's, it's what draws a lot of her clients to her. But I think like the training thing is kind of about that, like mm. just having this framework where you can relate to other people or look in these forums or spend your time. And, and nominally, it, it, you know, you feel good about yourself because you're like doing something that's, you know, towards self-improvement. But I mean, we have these climbing goals too, but there's just this bigger framework. And so I think we have to think about it like that. And also the proliferation of it is, I think, because of that more than actual people getting, you know, that are climbing necessarily improving. And mm-hmm. I think fundamentally, we all know how you improve your climbing. Mm-hmm. It's by going and climbing. Right. And that, I mean, without a doubt, that is how you get better at climbing. And and if you end up, you know, in Cebuan land, then yes, you, you, you run into needing to add those extra tiny percentage points that like focus training could get you. But if you're climbing 510, and you want to climb 511, hangboarding ain't going to get you there. It's just right. not. You know, you or have to will. go and go climbing. Or it will. I don't I think mean, it will. Well, whatever. Or it will. I mean, like, right. and, well, maybe, it, yes, in addition to climbing a lot, you know, hangboarding <laughs> might help you get you there marginally faster. I mean, I think that's the point is that it's all marginal. Like a lot, right. all of this stuff is just marginal to the, to the actual focus, which is just being spending time on the rock and, and getting and learning how to climb and learning how to navigate mm-hmm. all this stuff. I, th- I think what you just said is kind of interesting because there are these two, these two fields or these two genres that kind of, uh, or two branches of what we're talking about. There's like the very geeky approach, which is like, I want to know how many seconds, you know, I need to hang on the five millimeter edge or whatever, you know, for well, the and optimal. You your, yeah. And you do your lattice assessment and that, you know, gives you this, this very specific, you know, parameter under which you're going to train and try to improve and things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's you, definitely, you look at the physiology, gets, you know, you, yeah. lo- you know, you understand the parasympathetic nervous response to doing d- deadlifts and that somehow is like that knowledge and, and dwelling on that through 
articles and podcasts about that uh, aspect of it somehow just somehow adds to the fact that just like it's obviously clear that just lifting heavy weights like over and over again will just get you fit and make you strong like that's all kind of there is to it but somehow it's like you need to understand that like sciencey geeky part to it in order to I don't know justify it or I'm not sure what the what exactly you get out of that additional information (laughs) you know what I mean um, but then there's also that this like more emotional and mental approach where it's mm-hmm. like in order to have the space to like be a, this like great climber, you need to like, you know, address your childhood traumas and you need to like. <laughs> that would be to, the extreme version of yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever, you know, like uh, t- you, you need to, you know, meditate and like have like this uh, background in stoic philosophy in order to like kind of have this simplistic view and detachment from goals and, uh, you know, understanding that, um, you know, the, the process is the, is the, where the real wor- reward lies. And um, all these insights just kind of come, I think they're, they're available for anyone to just discover themselves um, without any additional inputs because, if you were to simply just climb all the time, you would eventually come to understand that there, you know, the iterative process of climbing that, you know, you do a route, there's joy, and then you get, you know, you go back into the pain cave of trying to do another route and, you know, the whole process unfolds once again. And um, you don't need necessarily to like have all of this background context and information to, to just be attuned to that. Um, understanding and it's the same with like all the physical training aspects like you is it really like just I don't know just like going to like do anything in the gym even if you're doing it wrong will help you as marginally as like being the most optimized you know person with the late armed with the latest training information in my view I don't know I'm not sure maybe that's a little extreme to say but I think it's like not far off from from reality there is sort of this other aspect of of the training that I've used and that and that is simply, you know, sort of maximizing what little time you have. Mm-hmm. I think is a place where it's actually pretty useful because, you know, when I say yeah, the best thing to do with your with the, you know, to become a better climber is to climb all the time, but of course, you know, more and more the demographic of climbing has moved away from people just giving up everything else in their life to become climbers, which is sort of a paradigm, at least a good climber needed to do that when we started. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no option to to go to a gym or to whatever. So if you wanted to be a great climber, that was kind of the only path was to climb all the time at the detriment of a lot, lot of other parts of your life, particularly any sort of career. So, I mean, the, the training thing, it's like it gathered steam, I think, because of that, mm-hmm. right? Is that, and I know this from other sports as well, you know, triathletes and that do one or two races a year. They train, you know, they have a job in some building in a cubicle somewhere and the training helps them be able to maximize. Um, so I think that's part, part of its growth is also the growth of that demographic and climbing that's not completely, you know, a lifer, mm-hmm. which is, uh, which is, you know, not new now, but it was, it would have been. This idea would have been kind of absurd 30 years ago that you could become a good climber without ever kind of leaving your your town in the Midwest or whatever it happens right, to be. Right. So, um, but it's also this other trend, and I, I'm sort of going to predict this a little bit, okay? Because I've been I've been thinking about it a lot, but I'm starting to see it, and that is where 
you, you know how like um well skis would be a good analogy um if you did like a time lapse of skis each year they put out skis like over the last 30 years it would be this thing where the skis like grew skinnier and then grew fatter and then grew skinnier and then grew fatter and and so it's like every year they're like they have to show the new thing and so they they maximize how fat they get and pretty mm-hmm. soon that you know we've seen skis that look like two snowboards on your feet and they always have you know this reasoning that justifies why it's better mm-hmm. even though like 6 years ago or 7 years ago they were saying why the giant fat skis better right. and they will be saying that again in like 6 or 7 years and so i think training is sometimes feels like that and i think we're actually on a trend towards what i'm saying is that these very enlightened coaches are going to Buck the trend that we're talking about, and they're going to be like the real, the real path is to go climbing and just enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to be sort of the guru types, like to to get back. Let's get back to what we loved about climbing, and that's going to be their coaching tip. Is but it's going to feel like it's a tip. It's going to feel like it's this knowledge that you didn't have before mm-hmm. because you've spent the last six years like trying to figure out if it's 10 seconds or seven seconds or five seconds or whatever open you know are you dragging do i get rid of the pinky do i keep the pinky like all that shit there's going to be these coaches more and more that are like no what you need to do is reconnect to nature and find yourself on 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 a climb and and reconnect and you know that's going to be what's good (laughs) for you and i just it's like the fat skis getting skinny again basically is what's what's about to happen it's coming they're going to reject themselves i um that for some reason that made me remember that um that guy colin o'brady who is um who made those claims about you know traversing antarctica that uh damien gildea just debunked and kind of right yeah he's kind of like the self-promoter adventure dude and um he he came out with like a book or something in the last year or two about his approach to like you know bettering the self and it was to walk 12 hours a day like without any like you know not listening to podcasts just go like walk for like 12 hours and (laughs) (laughs) that was like the whole like his entire insight into like the the key to unlocking happiness and and health and everything and i was like i I kind of want for my wife being a divorce lawyer (laughs) Like, oh yeah, honey, I'm going walking again for 12 hours. <laughs> I wanted to come up with a, a spoof or something about just my, you know, my approach to self-improvement would be just to sleep for 12 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. Just stay in bed <laughs> 12 <Yes>. hours. <laughs> you'll get a bigger cock. You'll climb hard. Everything will like yep. fall into place. It'll all fall into place. Yeah. yeah so. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> I know we've ripped on this before. We've talked about gurus and climbing and, mm-hmm. and it's just, there isn't, I think it is just, there is this skepticism that I just hold to, to all of these people. But I think the real opportunity cost is that I just find all of this stuff just so boring and, or, um, and it's like, it's coming all of this attention that's being put into, you know, being directed toward this content that basically is all climbing media now I just think is such an opportunity cost or loss about all the other more interesting things there is to say and observe and talk about regarding climbing. Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I, I think everything's being talked about. Um, and, and, and the same thing happens. It sort of comes in waves. What, 
what gathers because I mean, it, it's when we talk about these conversations, it's like we're all under the thumb of the algorithm and the algorithm, it, it's just a snowball. Yeah. So, you know, you click on it and it, and, and it just starts to build and starts to build. And then also, you know, people are constantly trying to, you know, make a career out of climbing. And, you know, I'm trying to do that with podcasting and, and, you know, it used to be that the path was simply either work for a climbing company or to be a professional climber. But now there's all these niches and hustles and things like that. And I honestly think that the, it's a, it's a great hustle Mm -hmm. and it's, it's a hustle that, that people have, you know, it's, it's a hustle that's been conjoined with social media. It wouldn't exist without it at least not at the level that it's at right now. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's kind of part of it as well. And it, it feeds into what you're talking about with the gurus and the, in the sort of like, nobody really knows what's going on, mm-hmm. but you know, if you can package it up and convince some people you do and provide them again, like you're providing this service, the good coaches are realizing that you're providing this service that isn't just about crimp strength. It's about community. Um, you know, it's about, allowing those people to feel like they're part of your climbing life. If you're sort of a celebrity climber, you know, it's like, think about the wide boys. It's how you, you become know, which, a thousandaire. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think that some people it is, but it's like, if it's a side hustle or part of like a larger thing where you're guiding and stuff like that as well, it all kind of tries to fit in there. And maybe there'll be, as people realize that like the input versus the output doesn't always match like the input of energy versus the money you know being a thousand air isn't really worth it kind of a thing it may fall off but the truly successful ones will will continue and i was going to mention the wide boys and then tom randall's you know lattice training is his thing but i mean think about like the just the the sort of global thing that they've created and it's super inclusive and it's super high energy and and you get to feel like you're part of their crazy adventures and you know, or you're in this sort of niche, you know, off with climbing thing that's kind of like tapered off a bit. Have you noticed that mm-hmm. off with climbing isn't as hot as it as it probably yeah. was a couple of years ago? Yeah, that's um, but yeah, but it's like more than just again, like we want you want to crimp harder. No, you want to be part of this whole thing, and so the good ones will do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that also is like a symptom of what you're talking about over the last ten years, where we started about how crummy everything seems you know, people are yearning for this belonging into these, into these communities. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a smart training person, you're, you're going beyond just the like, okay, do this and don't do that. I mean, even, you know, it's like, look at what, what Chris Hampton does at power company. I mean, it's this whole package of his podcasts and his coaching and, mm-hmm. you know, so you, when you become sort of part of that, you become part of this group right. that, you feel supported in. Right. And so it's like, we're looking at kind of the nitty gritty, but there's this, this bigger thing that I think it serves, but it all goes back to what we're talking about anyway, is that we want, people want community and they want to belong and they want to feel supported. And, and if they climb a little harder, great, but I don't think it's totally necessary to be for a successful sort of coaching regime. Right. Um, yeah, no, that's a good spin. I like that. Um, yeah, I guess I worry that people probably see really strong climbers like one arm hanging, you know, off of a little edge with like 20 pounds of weight hanging off their harness or whatever and think that that's required to to climb hard and it's just not. I mean like 
you certainly if you can do that you'll climb harder than you do now but it's like i don't know there's just so much more that goes into it can i tell you a story please about that i was in um australia and this would have been 93 94 something like that and uh there was this dude who was who was generally like people it, we were all camped at a rapley's and there was this kid who was like generally people found annoying and um like literally like you would if he camped near people they would like one morning like up and move kind of away but uh nevertheless but he he actually literally like said to me you know i can't believe you climb harder than me and then he like proceeded to grab like the branch of a tree and do like two or three one-arm pull-ups and like basically like <laughs> literally flexing right like look what i can do i can't believe you can climb harder than i do and i wasn't like an incredible climber at that time i was like you know a good solid 511 track climber everything that comes with and doesn't come with um but yeah but you know he was like a 510 climber or 59 climber or something like that and mm -hmm. it just like blew his mind mm -hmm. and i mean i didn't really have anything to say about it i was like dude you gotta like learn how to climb you know this isn't good enough you just whip it's out your like, nuts and you're like look at these yeah. buddy <laughs> yeah, look at this thing <laughs> so anyway it's just it, it's always stuck with me because that continues to happen with me in the gym and things like that like yeah. dudes that can just crush me in the gym mm -hmm. and then you know we run into them here on the western slope outside and and they're projecting stuff you know that i'm warming up on right and it and i've often thought to myself like why is that like how how is that possible i wish I had your strength, um, but it's not necessarily the key to climbing that hard. Mm -hmm. These sort of feats of strength, um, kind of party trick stuff, uh, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Certain routes, certainly. Steep climbing, probably, but um, it's not necessarily the key, I don't think. I think the key to climbing harder is climbing 12 hours a day and sleeping 12 <laughs> hours a day. <laughs> when do you walk 12 hours a day <laughs> yeah. then? You do that on your rest days. You need a you need a time machine where you go back twelve hours and then walk for twelve hours, and you arrive at the same time of the day. So, or wait, what about sleepwalking? <laughs> there you go. Ooh, I love it. That's like the ultimate optimization. <laughs> but is sleepwalking V sixteen or V fifteen? <laughs> Have we decided we've come down on that yet? Oh. <laughs> It's too hard for either of us. That's for sure. Yeah. That's all that matters. Unless we train. Unless we train. If I could do one arm, I'm certain I could do sleepwalker. Okay. And downgrade it further. We got to start. Has it been downgraded yet? Yeah. Like officially? It's done. It's done. done. It's done. It's so easy now. <laughs> With the sit, is there a sit? I think so. I think Daniel did it. Okay. So we'll see if that comes down. What if I go dig out another like two or three feet and do the sit, the, the pit? Then it's a trad climb. We could start that like with, with boulder palms. There's the sit start and there's the pit start. <laughs> then there's the shit start if you're in Europe. Dean Feidelman is a photographer and artist best known for his work, Stone Nudes, and for capturing some of the most iconic pictures of the Stone Masters. His latest book is Feidelman, A Body of Work. 
I think uh, really been thinking about making this particular book since let's say 2018, mm -hmm. really right after Stone Newts ended more or less, and the Stone Monkeys were no longer sort of a driving force in Yosemite, hadn't been for a number of years. At that point, I was like, okay, well, maybe I should make like a retrospective, like maybe I should put all my work together. I'd never really seen it all together. I even myself, right? You see it in pieces, bits and pieces, because the one thing I kind of always knew about making work or for me, it was like, I can't dwell on what work I've already made. I have to focus on one is in front of me that I need to make. And so after Stone Nudes, I, I definitely thought about a retrospective and then started to, to dig through really old stuff going to, into the 70s and in the 80s and, and looking at things and kind of dragged up a couple hundred things really to look at. And I was like, yeah, I, I think there's something there, you know, but I, I, I didn't know where to start. And uh, then my editor, my publisher, Sequoia uh, D'Angelo, came to me and she said, hey, let's make a book and let's make it a book of all your stuff. She came to me in, I think, 2019, 2000 or 2020. That's when I really started to focus on that, you know, like, should I do this? Could I do this? What would it look like? You know, what do you want to say? So, yeah, it's, it's been percolating for a few years, but not throughout my entire career. No, I never focused on past work that much at all until this. And it was kind of fascinating because I think it was just at the right time for me to look at it, to really deeply go into that. And, uh, and the reason is because I've been kind of since 2020, 2021, I've been kind of like really trying to figure out what it is I'm making. And I don't have a clear idea of where I'm going. So looking at all this stuff, putting all my work together felt like what I needed to do to get closure, to move forward with what I'm going to create. And, uh, part of the thing with this all was that I, uh, got horribly sick last year. Like I was in emergency rooms three or four times. I was in the hospital for a week. I actually went blind in my left eye, lost a lot of vision in my right eye, like woke up that way. And it had been going on for five or six months while I was working on this book. And more than anything, I wanted this book to not be a struggle to make. Like all these photos in some way are a struggle. But to make the book, I wanted it to be really easy, you know, and, and really joyful. And I was so fucking sick and blind and missing deadlines and things that never, ever happened to me before. And then I'm making this book. So <laughs> it's, it's like, it, 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 I, I was numb for a while after making it, you know? And the publisher said, just do what you want to do. And I said, well, how many photos? And they go, how many do you have? And I'm like, I ended up with 350 photos and I had to cut that down to like 225. And I tried to ask other people their opinions, but I think that most people didn't really want to give it to me because they weren't really sure what I was trying to say. So when I cut down all those photos, it gave me much more an idea of what it was I was trying to say and really kind of 
then I kept cutting things to where the people in those photographs, the moments in those photographs in some way affected me personally, romantically, artistically, creatively, adventure, you know, those images resonated with me. And that's, that's how it ended up being like what it is. So I'm not sure. I'm still not sure about the book. When I look through the book, I open it up and I just run my hands over the pages, almost like it's Braille for me. I've never done that with my photos, but I just run my hands across it and it brings back everything. I take my hands off, go to another page, you know, something I never really thought I, that I was really going to do and, until these last few years. So. I'm so sorry to hear about your, your illness, Dean. Um, I had no idea. Would you be able to share any, any more details about that? Anything you're comfortable with? Are you still suffering from the effects of it or are you better? Um, yeah, now I feel a lot better. And so what I had going on was an enlarged prostate, which caused urine retention. So I had, I've had to have a catheter put in which is in a really uncomfortable thing, especially when you have to sit in front of a computer for eight to 10 hours a day working on your stuff. And then they had to keep putting new catheters in. And then I got a, a bladder infection that went into my kidneys that went up my spinal column that caused a brain infection that swelled up my optic nerves. <laughs> but but this this process took like six months and and I kept on going back and forth to the doctor and saying, hey, I, I feel horrible. I don't know what's going on with me. I have no energy. And they kept trying this and trying that and putting this drug in there and that drug in there. Finally, when I woke up blind, I had no choice. You know, I, I basically got someone to drive me to Palo Alto to Stanford Hospital from Yosemite. And I checked myself in, it took a week and they figured it out. Then I had like a antibiotic pump on me for couple weeks. It was crazy. Yeah. And I was like, oh, good that you're doing a retrospective because you might die here. <laughs> yeah, I didn't right. know. Yeah. So. I mean, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's gotta be heavy for a photographer to lose uh, eyesight. You know, that, that must've been a really oh, that was sort of crazy scary mo moment, you know, that was crazy. It's like I woke up and I couldn't see anything. I thought, you know, my eyes must be fucked up or you know needed clearer and they wouldn't clear and yeah and i was like dude your worst fears your worst fears you're blind and i was like shit i couldn't even use the phone <laughs> call my friend to come over and get me so yeah so that that whole thing and then you know no energy and i lost like 20 pounds yeah everything that was happening in that moment was like really strong and so I was like, well, maybe if this book feel the same way, it's a struggle. It's been a struggle. It's a struggle. Be strong. Tell the story. And that's kind of what, what I'm trying to do there. And uh, so many photos left on the table, I got to say. So many amazing, cool images. Not amazing. So tell, My work is not amazing. <laughs> tell, well, not at all. <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say, tell us about the process a, l a little bit more about just um, calling down to to that 225 or whatever it is images, because what was it that uh, you were going off of? Was it 
were there just instincts that this was more appropriate for this moment or what was the decision process like? I think a lot of it was, is, is for me. And I look at my work and the body of work. I was looking at like, what's truly original would be stone newts and, and some of my climbing stuff and some of my portraits and what got me there. And so that's when I started to cut things down. I started to cut stuff that like, I go, well, you know, like all this stone master stuff, you really, you, you kind of focused on a few people that were really close to you, Backer and Yablonsky and Mike Leklinski, Mari Gingery, just a few people, John Long was in there. And I was like, and if you look at your stone monkey stuff, you've got Potter and you've got, you know, a few other people in there and try to find how they match up try to figure out how that progressions work what you started with and where you you ended up and even in the 80s and 90s stuff i'm like you know a lot of these people are artists or they're lovers or something and but they mean something they mean as much as everyone else in this book figure out how that's going to fit like really how one image is going to bring you into the other one and 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 tell that visual story so so i looked for that progression and and it was there and i'm like oh you know it's like i didn't want it to be a lot of sameness and and at the same time i wanted to like do justice to certain periods of my life especially that period in the 2000s the monkeys which is really 2000 or you know 1999 until uh, 2014, 15, somewhere around there, right? Maybe when Dean passed, uh, a huge part of my life and so many people that came into my life, if just for a moment that, that, that made an impact in there. And, and that section was really hard for me to call those images down. And in fact, that section was much longer. You know, there was another 20 photographs in there that they cut that the, my publisher finally said enough. You know, we're going to cut this section. And I'm like, uh, uh, but you don't understand that's 20 years, you know, that's, <laughs> but, um, so that, that process was like, where do you, where do you want to focus? What do you want to look at? Do you want to look at people's eyes? Do you want to see their faces? Do you want to focus more in portraits or do you want to start working? You know, the early stuff, the stone master stuff, that's all about climbing. That's how I learned how to make climbing photographs. Right. Uh, looking at stuff like by Glenn Denny and Tom Frost, that's kind of what I was doing in my own way. And, and then I, I started working in the portraits, which is the same thing that, that Glenn Denny and Tom Frost did. And I saw how I kind of continued that. So it's like um, in the eighties and nineties stuff where you're seeing a lot of nudes, more like a fashion nude or something like that. I'm like, you've always worked with the body. You've always worked trying to make a portrait so you're always trying to find out a little bit more about someone with a portrait you're, you're trying to uh, maybe show how someone fits in with their environment a little bit more with a climbing photograph or a climbing nude and i could see how i've always worked in those tones i've always worked in that black and white mostly but i've always kind of if if it's music I've always had that same phrasing. And so I tried to bring that forward, 
into the book. And that's what I really, in the end, focused on when I did my cut downs. Yeah. You know, there's the, the stone master stuff is pretty, you know, we're talking to climbers here and that stuff, you know, is what we know Dean Fidelman for, right. for the most part. And then the stone monkey stuff, you know, the Dean Potter for, photographs and things like that but it's interesting mm -hmm. how this book you know it is it is a, a retrospective of all your art and we've got this um sort of european sojourn that you had um mm -hmm. and into the fashion world which i mean as far as climbers are concerned is like the the dean the lost years you know um so tell us right t t exactly <laughs> I mean, you know what i mean it's like <laughs> oh look he, he he does that as well you know um, and it was, I knew about it because we had talked before, but I had never really seen photographs mm -hmm. from that part of, of your career. And, um, so I was super excited to see that in there. So can you, you know, I don't, I'm sure there's an endless amount of memories and stories to tell from that, but, um, at least maybe frame it as, as to when that fit into your life and, and why you did it to move past or move beyond the stone master sort of era when you were an actual stone master. But yeah, tell right. us about that European sojourn and that part of your life because it is sort of new to to the people listening. I think. Yeah, so that whole period of my life really kind of began in the early '80s, early to mid '80s, but early '80s, we'll say '83, '84. And when I went to school for photography in Santa Barbara Brooks Institute, and I was there for about a year, year and a half, and they kicked me out because I was having an affair with a teacher but anyway that's not the point the point is um i i wanted to be a, a professional photographer but i had no idea what that meant and no one ever bought any stone masters photographs and there wasn't much of a market for climbing photographs anyway that i knew of and i felt like i didn't know enough about photography so i ended up following uh, a partner to uh, New York. She was a, a choreographer and a dancer. And I started working for various photographers, right? I started working for uh, pretty well-known fashion photographers as a third or fourth assistant, sweeping up the studio, cleaning up things, because I wanted to see what it was they did. You know, you can't go to YouTube back then, right? And so I needed to know. I needed to explore photography and a lot of it kind of stemmed from this. I remember a conversation I had with Backer, like maybe five or seven years before that, when we were talking and he goes, uh, he goes, you know, I want to be the best climber in the world. That's what I want. I want to be the best climber in the world. He goes, don't you want to be the best photographer in the world? And I, I, I remember looking at him and going, I, I don't know what that means. Like the best climber in the world. Yeah, I figured the best climber in the world is going to be the person of solos, free solos, El Capitan. That's what I figured back then, right? And Backer wanted to be that guy in a way, you know, and he knew it and he wanted to put everything he had into it. And I wanted to be that photographer, but I didn't know what a best photographer in the world was or even very much about photography. Uh, so then when I went to school, got kicked out of school, I got to New York, then I started to really find out what photography was about like how people worked you know how top end photographers work with people how they made the photographs that they wanted to make how whatever vision they had in their 
their minds or in the moment was was able to be realized. So that period of my life was like um, kind of really, really interesting. Uh, I started out, you know, as maybe a, a third or fourth assistant. I was working my way up to like a second assistant. Uh, so I'm really on the set having a lot more say say so that's going on i started we started going out to parties my partner and i she was really popular we were popular uh we ended up getting a small studio together um and you know things were kind of kind of going really well then um i don't know if i should even say this but yeah then one night we had a party and the next morning uh she didn't wake up. And suddenly my party in New York was kind of over, you know? So there was all kinds of things that happened after that that caused me to actually go over to Europe. I just like kind of ran away from New York like really quickly and forgot about that stuff. And uh, I, I knew how to make a fashion photograph my heart wasn't really in it, but, but in Europe, I was able to, to work making fashion. Uh, it was not in a really great state of mind for those couple few years. And, uh, yeah, that whole experience in New York changed me. It was a thing that changed the whole trajectory of my life in a way. Uh, I was learning about what it took. And then this thing happened that just put me down for a long time so a lot of those photographs are much darker photographs yeah, I, and much I, I was just thinking yeah, that ahead. actually when, when you when, when you just explained what happened i was like yeah it, it's literally dark you know that section of the book those photographs i mean not, not working outside you know that's that makes a, a big difference because you've always been mm -hmm. someone who worked with the light that was natural but um but yeah it, it kind of sent a shiver down my spine when i just realized like the darkness is reflected in those in those photographs. Mm-hmm. Like even the stuff with a lot of light, there's 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 this this thing there mm -hmm. that that uh, you know. Eventually, when I came back to to California and I, I started to work in music videos and that kind of stuff, and I, I really knew quickly that none of this stuff was going to work for me. And but in looking back at that period of time, I realized what I was doing is i was simply you know, most of those photographs that i made in that section uh were not published ever uh they weren't work some of it maybe was you know work but most of it was my way fully of expressing what was going on inside and how i was feeling and the distance between me and everyone else uh that's that's what i was expressing very much so. And I realized that when I was looking at it, I was like, put it in there because still, even within that stuff, you can see what I'm doing, like how I'm thinking and, and how things are going to happen when I, when I start going back into the climbing stuff in the late nineties. So, um, but yeah, that period was really strong and full value, I suppose, in a way. And, uh, 
And yeah, you think I, like I say, I run my hands over those images and I think about some of the things and, and I look at Julie, my partner at the time, and, uh, I run my hands over there and I think what, what could have happened? Where would we be? Who, who would I be? You know? And it was such a really very real possibility that, that any would be just, we wouldn't be talking. I wouldn't be here, you know? And yeah, it's, that is my time out in the desert in a way, right? It's, it's my time away from here, my community and my people. It's interesting to hear you describe um, some of your influences in terms of of your style of photography. Your style strikes me as very hard to pin down. You know, you're not quite a photojournalist or you're not quite an action sports photographer, although you do all those things really well. But how do you describe your work? Like, what do you, how do you think of yourself? What kind of photographer do you, do you think you are? I like to think that the work is really kind of very straightforward um, and it's, it's right there in front of you. But I do have a very certain symmetry to how I compose and how I like things to look and what tones I kind of like. And and so I, I've always liked my style in a way to musical. And that's still kind of how I feel about it. It is kind of a, a lyrical style in a way. It's not really in your face, but it doesn't it doesn't shy away from from having a center of interest either. So it's like I'm a formalist. I'm going to show you things. I'm not trying to pull any punches, but I am trying to say something with it. So yeah, it, it, you're right about the fact that it's it's kind of a hard style to pin down, and part of that reason is where I ended up where I started from, you're climbing, but you want to be an artist. You want to make this action stuff. But at the same time, you have all these like influences and, uh, and, and formal training and so on that, that kind of, kind of in a way like can be a prison and in the other way it can be the, the key to unlocks the prison, right? It just depends on where you end up going with it. And so a lot of what I've, I've tried to do with the work is, is to not overpower anyone with technique, but try to bring in more emotion. So, so it does become hard, harder to pin down. I agree. I also really liked what you said earlier about, um, you know, not, uh, having time to look back because you're kind of focused on the next thing and doing more work. And, um, I can certainly relate to some of that. Um, but you know, I guess, uh, you know, having these opportunities to go back through decades of, you know, climbing photography and just other photography that you've taken. But um, I guess my question is specific to the climbing side of it. What, mm-hmm. what, what kind of popped out to you about climbing? What is there to be said about how climbing's trajectory has taken as it relates to the course of your work? Um, were, were there any, any insights or any kind of things that stood out in, in the, during this process of looking back over these many years? Oh, definitely. Um, all that early Stonemaster stuff, it, that was just, everything you see there was as it was happening. There wasn't anything being rehearsed or redone. 
a lot of times like with, with backer especially would be like uh he would get the climb down to where he wanted it then he's going to go solo it and i'm going to go make photos but that's it we're not going to set anything up it's probably gonna maybe i might ask for a certain time of day for the light something like that but it was just what was kind of happening at the time and then in working in the 90s and into the 2000s that that paradigm definitely changed because there were some really good photographers you know everyone from jimmy chin to jimmy thornburg to you know that were making really good climbing photographs and some photographs were getting staged right light right clothes right everything you know, things you know especially in the the late 90s early 2000s you know there was a ton of photographers out there making stuff for patagonia and you know whomever and all that stuff was starting to leak into the magazines you know and the fashion was kind of you know driving all that stuff i think and uh the magazines actually had a little bit of money so they started sending you on trips with sponsored climbers so really what was happening was there was a lot of editing going on to really like sell it both ways sell it as an editorial for a magazine but also sell it as you know more uh, underwear advertising for patagonia uh so the commercial aspect really started to happen it was more noticeable in those late 90s and into the 2000s and and since then it's just gotten more you know more intensified more images being thrown out there now obviously in the last decade video is 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 the uh the medium but instead of how do i put it i i think it's like there's less about expressing an experience and more about creating content that can be read in a lot of different ways i think like and commodifying uh, the experience yeah. maybe i think yeah a lot of the media is commodifying the experience so you're you're telling yes. me dean you weren't like working for a painter's pant manufacturer headband <laughs> headband manufacturer back then in, in the 70s because it sure it sure feels no, no. like it <laughs> well plus i had i had photos of people smoking dope so that immediately just took me out um and then like you know it's it's it was it's, it's kind of it's kind of funny and, and i mean there's so many good photographers out there so many good content containers or creators just you know so much media hitting you uh and who knows what's authentic and what's not authentic and now with ai things are gonna take and and the olympics and you know further marketing or commodification as andrew said um it's fascinating it really is fascinating and i, I see what's happening now with with people is like there's going to be someone in in your group that's good with the camera and hopefully that person understands that they're good with the camera and records the personal history of all those people, right? I, I can't make selfies. It doesn't work with me. I'm too old now. But I've always turned my camera outward. And I, I think there's others out there that will turn their camera outward to not only, you know, distill an experience, but to express how they feel and how they fit in with that experience. I, I think... I feel things are still going in a good direction. 
I'm just, I'm just kind of hesitant about uh, how commercial things will become with climbing, especially with the Olympics. It's, it's a different ball game. Well, one of um, the interesting things about printing a book in in the year twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four now it came out in December yeah. is, you know, we we are just kind of inundated with this influx of photography everywhere. I mean, you can open up your phone and mm-hmm. see a thousand climbing photographs, um, you know, in the span of fifteen minutes, and and like yep. you said, they're all really good because the the bar is so high, but the experience of um, I mean, you don't get to run your fingers over them and to kind of reflect on the meaning as you, as you were so uh, you know, beautifully describing what it's like to, to sit down and look at your, your book. So I wonder if there is going to be a, a maybe a hunger or just a desire for, for this kind of these older formats or, you know, just to have that distance from, from the kind of, you know, everything all at once, all the time on your phone experience that, of this digital world that we live in? I certainly hope so. I mean, I, I'm going to be making more books. I'm working with James Lucas on uh, the Stone Monkeys book. We'll see what that happens or not. James told me, he goes, yeah, you know, I really want to make this book, but I kind of like, I don't want to put any energy into it. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> we, 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 we all know peaches, right? Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and he goes, and I'd like to make a little bit of money off of it. And I'm like, so basically what you're saying is uh, you you want me to lead this thing, right? And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. I mean, I, I'd love to go climbing and stuff. But, <laughs> but um, there are people making photos with film. There are people that, that love books and, be, and being able to contemplate those. And I think that those techniques are still around. It's, it's actually in some ways easier to make a book than ever. And in other ways, it's, it's super difficult. So it just depends on, on how you want to do it. But I mean, I mean, Andrew, as a writer, you, you know about books. You've read books your entire life, right? That's how you educate yourself as a writer in a lot of ways. So to open those things up, to crack those things and, and being able to come back at it in a different you know, week, less than a week, a month, whatever, to look at things, to, to be able to, to actually make those things with your hands. Yeah, I think that's going to come back. I really hope it does in a lot of ways for a lot of people, even if it's very short run little books. Yeah, definitely. I love them. I love books. I'm old. It's hard for me to get anything off my phone anymore. You know, I can't see. So, <laughs> you know, another uh, in the book. I mean, another section which I had never seen anything from is you using color photography. Anyone who knows your photos from climbing will will just think black and white, and 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 you're uh, you're you know you're masterful with the use of black and white with the shadows, and it's it's amazing how you sort of create light within those types of photographs and but then i i looked at these uh i looked at these color photographs and they're and they're they're just incredible and so i kind of want to ask you just you know about that shift and and i know that it was because of a gifted camera to you you and and you i guess said well let me check this thing out and uh and the results are are quite astounding actually you know if, if for no other reason people try to find this book um, it, I think it's it's as much for that, you know, these color color photog or this color photography. So, 
you know, what was the impetus? I mean, the camera, you could have left it in a duffel bag somewhere and moved on. Um, you know, you started clicking photos and then you got really into it. You know, the, the use of light in those are just wild. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I was, I had the camera and I was like, okay, so first things I started doing with the camera was they're very sophisticated. You can flip, you can flip it into black and white. So when you're looking through the viewfinder, it's black and white and you can actually just make yourself black and white images. So I immediately started making black and white images with this thing and playing with it and seeing, you know, wow, yeah, it's just kind of cool. And, and I stop for a second. I go, Jesus, it's like, what are you doing? It's like, you have this, you have this Lamborghini and you're going 35 miles an hour, you know? <laughs> that's kind of what it felt like and i was like you need to figure out color and i'm like no i'm colorblind i'm not colorblind it turns out all that time in the hospital with those these these doctors looking into my my eyes with these incredibly bright lights you know uh, i said hey am i colorblind they go nah they go look at this dot look at this dot look at this dot you see in the numbers i like yeah they go you're not colorblind i'm like oh thank you so <laughs> I'm like, oh, you're not colorblind, idiot. So <laughs> this is something you have to learn, right? And, and it's like, you, you think that you're playing music and you're playing the blues. You've played the blues your entire life, mm -hmm. right? And now I guess, you know, you're like Bob Dylan. You can plug in, mm -hmm. right? And, and start putting a, some color in there. And so, you know, I went to you know, a few people, um, Mikey Schaefer who's a really great photographer, but he's also like a computer geek. I asked him some questions about some of the photos he made and how he made those photos and what techniques were being used here. And he also worked for a few you know, other really great photographers, elite guys, Jimmy Chan, a few other people, and asked some of them, you know, I know them, so they're going to tell me, you know, yeah, what what are you guys doing here? What what's going on with this? And they're like, you know, you, you've got to get in there and, and and work on things, and and figure it out. And so that's kind of what I did. I went to I, fortunately in this this time period, I was able to go to YouTube, and there's so many different photo channels, and anything I wanted to know was there. And so then I started to kind of look into color theory a little bit like more than a little bit, like a ridiculous amount. And um, I was like, yeah, I can, I can do some things. And so what happened was random. So like in 2019, I was kind of homeless. The place I was living in, in El Pertel, Sean Leary's place, they decided they wanted to tear down the place and the family wanted to build something on the property. So I left and I was kind of aimless and, and homeless in my van for a few months. And uh, I got a call from Ken Yeager, who was the, or is the head of the Yosemite Climbing Association. And he said, hey man, I've got this building in Mariposa. I wanna make a museum. Do you know how to do that? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know how to do that. Climbing museum, right? And he goes, yeah. I go, yeah, I can do this. So he says, well, come here. So I went there and he said, well, you know, tell me what you need. And the, the, the Yosemite Climbing Association got me a printer. They got me a bunch of things. And I designed and installed this museum. Uh, I made all the prints. I matted all the photos. I cut all the frames. I wrote all the captions. We, we made display cases 
I went up to you to the valley and got pieces of rock and put them there with the pitons on them and wrote all the can you know did everything and at the same time this is right at the beginning of the pandemic i was supposed to have a stone nudes book coming out which came out but it, it died because of the pandemic no one was going to buy books but i met a very young beautiful artist we fell in love she came there to mariposa and we had our own little world right because it was a pandemic so there was no one around and it was just our own little fantasy world where we would work on the, the museum and then we would go up to yosemite and i started making these photographs i started making photographs of her everywhere and just i wanted to make photographs of this love because i realized that because of our age difference and because of life this wasn't going to last and uh and i was seeing all this in color you know I just was so in love and so in my own little world and with her in our little world and people would come in from the outside and hang out for a while and then leave. And it was just us and the valley was empty and we'd run around and make these photographs and sleep down by the river. And then after one year, when the gallery was pretty much almost done and everybody's mask came off, she left me, broke my heart. And uh, three months later, I was fired from the museum, terminated for being an out-of-control artist. And then I met someone else, and I continue making these photographs pretty much in 2022 is when most of that was happening. So, yeah, the color came from love and passion, 100%, from you know the whole world coming to a stop and from me getting everything I wanted that was going to eventually be taken away, but it's like, it's like life. Then you just continue moving forward. So that's, that's where the color came from. That's why I, I threw a lot of, of my heart in there, but also, you know, re-educated myself in a lot of ways. Because uh, if I want to move into the future, I have to be open, you know, the moment you're closed, the moment you close yourself off, the moment you just stay where you're at, uh, is when you stop growing and, you know, um, what do I, I like to say that dreams are the stuff that life is made of, but it's more like life. It's the stuff that dreams are made of. You know what I mean? That was amazing. Yeah, I love by that. The way, dude. <laughs> See, yeah. I, to I told you, Andrew, this is, <laughs> yeah. we're like, oh, yeah, we'll make this a quick one. No. <laughs> uh, Mr. Fidelman <laughs> has got, you know, you just sit and listen anyhow, but, um, um, <laughs> <laughs> let's go let me ask you a little bit then about i mean the stone nudes uh you mentioned it and just talk, talking a little while about the book but you know it within the new book body of work it opens with talking about how the original kind of one of the original uses of photography frankly like almost as soon as they could take pictures they were, they were doing these sorts of photos these you know nudes of, of varying types. There's a little historical um, kind of retrospective on some of the influences, not just on that form, but also on you specifically. Um, but the stone nudes thing is, is, uh, you know, climbers, if, if they're going to talk about you, it's going to be the pictures of, of uh, the stone masters and then the stone nudes. And, and also in the book, it talks about how that, you know, is sort of this pretty original form that you, you know, you took these influences, but, kind of invented this idea or these ideas of um, mostly women's bodies against 
against these back to these natural backdrops um, and climbing specifically. So can you talk about um, a little bit just about, you know, the effect that's had on you as far as doing that for, for as many years as you have and the decision to stop doing it um, as far as putting out calendars and also maybe a little bit about its effect on, on sort of climbing pop culture in a way. Um, they've had, you know, they're, they're sort of like titillating in some ways and art, you know, there's, there's certainly art, but you know, you can't give climbers pictures of naked women without, you know, them chuckling a little bit and, and, you know, checking it out and all that sort of thing. So I don't know if you know what I'm getting at, but um, can you just talk about the yeah, stone no, nudes do. as a body of work and, and introducing those to the climbing world and, and how that all worked out for you? Yeah, the, the, the whole stone nudes thing was, it came from, like, I could see how climbing photography was going and I can see where the community was at. And, and I knew there was a lot better climbing photographers, especially, you know, 1999 than I was. They were putting their, their whole passion into it. But I also knew that my canvas was climbing. I knew that. And, and all the paint was the people in it. I, I, I understood this a lot. And so I, I was like, I always like to make nudes. And you'll see that, obviously, that I, I loved making nudes. And I always was good with it. And I always really loved soloing photos and bouldering photos. And, and I always felt I was really good at both of those, but I was very, had a very neat feeling because I love bouldering. I, I, I love it. And um, I've always loved it. And I was like, you know, I should mix these things together. I should bring the nudes into the bouldering because I just see it working better than climbing more. Like it just sort of says something about you know, body position and, and flow and how things just merge. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. And then I went to a, uh, I think at that time I was living out in Joshua tree, but I had some friends that managed a, a climbing gym in LA rock creation. I think it was Santa Monica. And I convinced a couple of, of women to make some photos with me. Both good friends and of mine. <laughs> Yes, because I was working there too. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, you yeah. were. Yep. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's right. And and so uh, the photos came out really well. And and because I had no expectations on these photographs, I was like, we're gonna just you know, I'm just gonna make a beautiful photograph. I'm not gonna focus on anything except for the details I know that I need to make a beautiful climbing photograph or bouldering photograph, and that's what I did. And they worked. And then a lot of other people in that gym ended up into that first calendar, which was then published by Josh Lowell from um, Big Up. Big shout out to Josh and Brett. And it was, of course, a, a commercial failure. <laughs> and <laughs> but I really liked making the photographs. And 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 I was like, OK. Just make these photographs maybe you'll make another calendar. It doesn't matter. Just make the photographs and be, I don't know how to, how to explain it, but it was like, let the people know in the photographs. And I think everyone does now let them know that I'm, I'm simply here to collaborate with you to make these photographs. Like you have control. I have control. We're going to make this thing together. Like you climb together. Like I'm spotting you, like whatever. 
we're just going to let go of any expectations and just make these beautiful photographs. And so I started to do that. And I, I realized that, that if I started to make money off of these things, then maybe it would change how I started making these photographs. And maybe it would change the people that were coming into the photo. So it's like, but I realized I wasn't going to make any money because I didn't. So I, I realized that I was going to have to keep myself poor in order to be true to just making art. And, and so that was this path that I walked for 20 years. And that was uh, kind of like what I think drew a lot of people into that project. Uh, like early on, it was always three degrees of separation. Someone knew someone who knew someone who might do this. And it, it, it became like no degrees of separation where people were coming up to me and wanting to be in these photographs uh, because they could see what I was expressing. And what I was trying to express was like, you know how you're out there bouldering and you've got that sequence figured out and you pull really good and you're fully in balance. Nothing feels better in that moment than that moment. And that's what I'm trying to express there. And yeah, the nudity and the bodies and all that stuff. Yeah, it, it's, it's different. But at the same time, I think people really understood what I was trying to say. And that's why they wanted to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of sexualized climbing photographs out there that you can find. You know, someone with a bikini oiled up or whatever. They're saying, you're getting what they're saying. Trust me, people understand what's being said. And when they look at these photographs, they understand what's being said. And so I really refined whatever music I was playing in that moment through that work. And that sound resonated with this community in, in a really big way. And then everything else I did in that period of time with stone monkeys and friends and portraits and so was was kind of not financed but motivated and and you know given a little bit more credibility because of that the stone nudes I think and uh, people come up all the time and they're like dude you know that stuff really is inspiring I really love the work I like you know, your books, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, you know, you, you need to do this. You need to make this, you need to make a book. You need to, to, you know, make some photographs. You need to be an artist. I always tell people that if, if, if there's a, a period in their time when they feel lost, I'm like, just call yourself an artist. Don't worry about it. And I go, that's kind of what I did. I was like, I'm going to be an artist. This is my path. I love sleeping in the meadow. I love, you know, sleeping down by the river. I love driving three days to make a photograph that takes, you know, a couple hours and driving another two days to, to make another photograph and living a, a really small, tiny little van, you know, I, I love all that stuff. I love the fact that you have to sacrifice some comfort and stability to make the art. That's, that's all I know. And I'm not a stable person. And anyone who knows me knows that. And so a lot of ways the art, it comes from a place where you're, you're hungry, right? You have something to say. Um, and, and stone nudes did that for me in, in a big way. And so just like the stone masters photograph set me in this, in this path 
the, the stone nudes kind of really allowed me to complete the path up to this point. And once that project was over, my, my life changed, but also a lot of stuff that I had held on to my entire life kind of dissipated. Uh, I was finally able to look at that. Like when that book came out in the middle of the pandemic, March 20th, 2020, <laughs> oh no one God. was going to, no one's going to buy your book. <laughs> I did. I bought one. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And <laughs> but yeah, that, that's a terrible timing. Alas, it's still out there though, right? You, people could buy it right yeah, now. No, it's yeah. People do buy it from me. I, I mean, I sell, you know, a few a month, so I, it's good, but it's, but I, I was like, I was like, well, you didn't do it for anything besides doing it right, dude. So if you're feeling butthurt or something by the world, get over yourself, right? Just move on. There's this irony too, is that like, I mean, if you're a quote unquote, like financially successful photographer, you're, you're literally taking pictures to sell clothing. Um, and so right. I remember having this epiphany or whatever, this realization at some point, I'm like, you know what's cool about this is that that he's not selling clothing like literally nope. he's not selling clothing nope. and so i'm like <laughs> and that's all like i mean honestly that's really the number one thing that climbing photography does is sell clothing right, right. yeah so yeah. it's yeah, yeah i just i remember having that realization i was like oh yeah this is this is fucking cool there's no labels none of that stuff no. so yeah it was pretty pretty neat but um but yeah it's 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 such a you know it's such this um I don't know if it's, it's a iconic in, in so many ways now. And, and I remember when the first calendar came out and those were friends of mine, cause I worked there at rock creation, um, had even, yeah. you know, dated Rebecca. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. So, and it was all just like, Oh my goodness. You know, there's like these naked girls and these climbing and, and you know, and they, they had their trepidations about it obviously, but they were all really happy with how it turned out. And I think it just snowballed from there as far as, uh, like you said, women wanting to do it and wanting to be pictured in there and, and sort of captured in these, like you said, in these moments, not just of, of like their balance, but of, you know, this level of fitness that they probably, you know, exactly. want to remember someday and, and when their bodies felt the best and, and, you know, as you just went through this illness, as you get older, you're, you know, your body starts to betray you in so many ways. And here's this, yep. uh, here's this record of you and, in, in your prime, you know, literally it's pretty cool. Yeah. I've gotten a lot of that as well from, from people I've worked with. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're like, Oh my God, I looked really good then. You know, I, yeah. I got two kids now. It's like 15 <laughs> years later. And I'm like, yeah, you know, you're still the same beautiful person. You know, right. it's, it's all yeah. good to me, but, right. but yeah, I, I kind of get that. I kind of say, you know, you wanted to express something. I wanted to express something. And so, and so we kind of did. And then the other part of it too was like, like there's so many people out there that are really good climbers are super passionate and have you know all kinds of different lives that will never be in a photograph that a lot of people will look at and go, what amazing photograph, right? What an amazing climbing photograph or whatever it's within the community. It's like, you, you're going to post up all your photographs on Instagram and so on and so forth. And they're just going to, it's just more content getting out there. Whereas these things they're going to end up in books. They'll probably end up in a museum at some point. They'll end up someplace that brings the whole legacy forward in a way. And I, I love the fact that all these people can be a part of that, right? It, it, to me, that's the best part. It's, even when I've made 
portraits of the, the stone monkeys over the years. It's like, man, these people, they had that passion in that moment. They, they were the best climber in the world for a second. I made the photograph and there they are. And 20 years from now, they're going to look at that and see the passion that was in their eyes and, and in, in their body and relate to that. Hopefully they run their hands over that photograph, right? And pick up that feeling. Well, there's another beautiful aspect to it is that, you know, and this is an unfortunate part of all of our lives as climbers is that you have these, these people memorialized, not just their youth, mm -hmm. but, but their lives, you know, th that are gone now and, and have been gone for many years in some cases. So, I mean, I, I'm sure that affects you um, when you've gone back through these photographs and run your hands over them quite deeply. Yeah, definitely. Uh, especially in the last year with, uh, Ammon mm -hmm. going and I went through a bunch of photographs and, and I put one in there for sure that I thought kind of expressed him in a, in a, in a kind of a different way than people knew him. But, um, and then, um, Zach Milligan, you know, he went and you know, I was like, honored that i had the photographs that that in a sense expressed something about them and me i was honored that that friendship was able to be expressed and at the same time like i'm like there's just too many people in here that aren't here anymore you know right. what i mean like I, I, that part we all know that as climbers and as humans and, and especially today's world it's like there's a lot of noise out there and 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 you don't want to give yourself too much more noise right it's hard to handle these days what's going on in the world so there's yeah so in looking at those photographs it brings you back to the humanity of those moments and, and of those people and i'm honored to do that and one of the things i definitely am going to do moving forward in in the next few seasons is making way more portraits of, of climbers in and around El Cap Meadow and, and Camp 4 and those kind of things just to make the photos, you know? No other purpose. Do you like movies? Moving pictures, if you will? Talkies? Well, one of the great things about being a rope gun and supporting the runout at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast is our ongoing bonus series of movie nights. We watch and talk about mainstream climbing films, sometimes so you don't have to. Our critiques of Hollywood's take on climbing don't just go for the obvious shots at vertical limit, but go deeper into the social and cultural influence of both the Hollywood schlock and the less well-known attempts to portray our sacred sport on the silver screen. Our latest movie night is the surprisingly delightful French film, The Climb, not to be confused with the reality series of the same name. Despite being a rom-com, The Climb, or L'Ascension in French, has much less crying and hugging than the HBO show. So join up at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to get movie nights and so many more bonus episodes, or just to support the show. Do it now. Become a rope gun today. Jeff Jackson is a former guest of the podcast, a close friend, a brilliant writer, and an absolutely prolific route developer. He's currently living in Maui with his family. And today's final bit is a bit of jamming between Jeff and his 16-year-old son, Kai. The context of this moment is that Jeff's son had just gotten into a typical schoolyard brawl, and this father-son jam session is the aftermath. 
bringing down the energy, chilling out, and returning to a place of peace and love. Enjoy. guys why you're home um i'm home because i got suspended in a fight um today and not that fun (laughs) (laughs) all right you've just listened to another episode of the run out podcast If you like our show, the best way to support us is by giving us money. We don't care about iTunes ratings. You can share it with your friends or don't, whatever. But we are 100% listener supported because we believe this is the best way to stay independent, say what we think, and be accountable to the most important people in our lives, which is you, our listeners. To support our show, check us out on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. For as little as $5.14 a month, you can become part of the Runout Nation and get bonus episodes that will titillate your ear holes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.